Shalom. Let's pray. Blessed are you, Yahweh, our creator. We thank you so much for a beautiful day. We thank you for a beautiful time of year. This new month that you have brought us into, this new season, the season of your feast and rejoicing. Father, this Shabbat, may we continue to search ourselves. May we continue to search and look for sin that remains within us. Help us to repent repent from it and be ready to stand before you blameless on the Day of Atonement. Father, I just pray that you would be with the fellowship here today. And uh, as we study your words, may they touch our hearts, Father. We ask this prayer in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, well, hallelujah. Good to see everybody today. Let's, uh, if you will, turn with me, and we're going to start in Psalm 104. It goes, Bless Yahweh, O my soul. O Yahweh, my Elohim, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. He established the earth upon its foundations, so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over, so that they will not return to cover the earth. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. Sorry about that. I forgot to flip for you guys. This psalm sums up Yahweh's great works of creation. It describes the framework of a system that operates and sustains itself by cycles and seasons. Throughout all the natural things that we can see around us, and also by the unseen forces that exist, Yahweh is an awesome creator, and and we are blessed to be called his people. Just think about how he created a system for the waters to be renewed. Clean water falls from the heavens. We can collect it and use it. Most of the water falls on the earth and it washes and waters the face of the ground, moving soil and nutrients down in the system, collecting in streams, rivers, and lakes where aquatic life can live and thrive, providing food and resources for man. Some of the water makes its way underground, getting filtrated by the earth and stored in rock aquifers, where it can then be collected by man for consumption at a spring or at a well. The waters eventually make their way to the oceans that create and moderate our weather systems. Eventually, through evaporation, the waters find their way back to the lower heavens, 
where they are purified, ready to start the cycle again. Can you imagine the intelligence of our creator to come up with such a system to design and create all the basic minerals that make up the rocks and soils of the earth? The vast array of plants and animals that all sustain the system while sustaining themselves from it. They just happen that way, right? No, he created these things in the right balance so that they can sustain itself for millennia and also created it resilient enough to be able to adapt to the constant changes of natural and man-made forces. He also created the stars and planets outside of the earth that regulate it, the sun with its life-giving warmth and the moon that regulates the tides and the seasons. What a marvelous creator. I can't even begin to comprehend the depths of his creation. As we read a little further down in the psalm, in verse 19 it says, He made the moon for seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. You appoint darkness and it becomes night, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from Elohim. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. Man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. O Yahweh, how many are your works? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This psalm also states the primary corporate vocation of man and his purpose here on earth as as, as a created being of Yahweh. It says in verse 14, and vegetation for the labor of man. Verse 14, it says, and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring food forth from the earth. This was our created purpose on earth, to be substance cultivators of the soil, as either gardeners or small-scale family farmers. In Genesis 2-7, it says, then Yahweh Elohim formed man of the dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Yahweh Elohim planted a garden toward the east, in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, Yahweh caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In verse 15 it says, Then Yahweh Elohim took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Here we see that Yahweh was actually the very first gardener. Because in verse 8, it says that Yahweh himself planted the garden. It was his work to establish the garden. Then he placed Adam, or man there, to, as this translation puts it, cultivate it and keep it. We're going to take a few... uh, We're going to pause here and actually look at the Hebrew roots for the words cultivate and keep. So the word translated cultivate here is uh, from the Hebrew word abad or avad. And uh, it's in Strong's H5647. And it's a primitive root and it means to work by implication to serve, till, or enslave to keep in bondage, to be bondsmen. Um, <clears throat> see, the KJV actually translates this word 
serve 227 times. So most of the time it's, it's translated as serve. So when we look at the definition of it, we can actually see that it carries more than just the meaning of tilling or cultivation. It actually shows that we are servants of the soil. We are actually bound to it because it's where we, where we came from. We are to serve the soil and it will serve us. It is a mutual relationship. When we look at the next word, <clears throat> for keep, it means, it is uh, the Hebrew word shamar from uh, Strong's H8104, and it's a primitive root, and it means to hedge about as with thorns, to guard or to protect, to attend to. Most of the time, King James um, translates, it, translates it as keep. However, we see that the word keep means to keep in a defensive way as to guard something, to create a hedge about the garden, it says. The word shamar is actually the same word used elsewhere in the Torah when we are told to keep or to observe Yahweh's commandments. For example, we have uh, Exodus 31, 13 through 14. It says, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe, or shamar, my Shabbat. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. Therefore, you are to shamar, or observe, keep the Shabbat. For it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off. From among his people. There have been many teachings out there about the word shamar in relation to the observance of commands. So without going into too much depth into that, we're, I just want to sum up to try to make the point that shamar carries much more of a meaning in the, in the Hebrew than what can be conveyed by English words such as keep, observe, or heed. It's almost better you know, summed up as a statement as to observe something in a protective manner to ensure that the object can fulfill its intended purpose. So now, with that in mind, let's look at Genesis 2.15 again. Then Yahweh Elohim took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Instead of cultivate and keep, we could translate it as Yahweh put man in the garden to serve and protect it. Essentially, we're to be the police officers of the police force of the Garden of and the earth. Now we know that Adam ended up failing in regards um, to guarding it when he allowed the serpent to enter the garden and deceive his wife Eve. And because of this, he was expelled from the garden, and the ground was cursed because of his sin. Genesis 3:17 it says, "Then to Adam he said, "Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I command you, saying, "You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you." In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So no longer was Adam living a luxurious life in a forest garden planted by the hand of Yahweh himself, But now he must work the ground for his food. He had to work it himself. He has to plant the seed, 
Weed the fields, harvest, and store the crops. It's laborious work that requires sweat, muscle, and occasional bloodshed. This was Adam's punishment that was passed down to mankind. It is a reproof that we must walk in, and uh, it's a, that we must walk in to learn that we are dependent on Yahweh for our needs. Further on in Genesis chapter eight twenty one, it says, "Yahweh's," and this is after the flood, after Noah gets off the ark and and um, made a sacrifice. He said, "It says that Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma, and Yahweh said to himself." I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Some may actually say that, Adam, uh, that the curse that was given to Adam is no longer in effect based on this scripture. However, I would disagree with that. I believe that the curse in which Yahweh is referring to here was specific to the destruction of the earth um, and the inhabitants by the flood. However, I do know and believe that the earth is different after the flood. We now have rains that water the face of the earth. But I do know that the earth was radically changed. And most of the temperate and tropical regions are fertile enough to be able, with proper stewardship, planning, and care, to be brought closer to what the Garden of Eden was like. But we know we still get thorns and thistles, and we still have to work the ground in order to produce abundant food for ourselves. It's not just growing in abundance um, as it was in the garden to be able to, you know, to sustain an entire population of the earth. And in 8.22, it says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest shall not cease. These, you know, this cycle, this um, corporate occupation that was given to man to, to work the soil still remains. It's a reproof that we must walk in. Because in verse 21, it says that the intent of man's heart is, is evil. The intent of our heart is evil. So therefore, we must continue to walk in and a way of life that lets us know that we are a created being. We did not create these things. We don't control the system. We are bondmen to a creator. When my family moved down to Cedar County recently in uh, southeast Missouri, we met a group, or southwest Missouri, we met a group of Sabbath-keeping, sacred-name, Torah-observant brothers that are living off-grid lives, semi-Amish-like, they're not Amish, but kind of like the Amish would live. When I first met one of the brothers, um, and I asked him, you know, what he called his way of life, what do you call yourself? Um, I was thinking, you know, I don't know, neo-Amish or something, but he basically, he just said, I don't call myself anything. Um, He goes, I just, it's just a Yahweh-dependent lifestyle. And he went on to explain how a simpler life without all the trappings of modern society like cell phones, cars, tractors, motors, electric device, you know, having electric even in your home, makes you realize how dependent you really are on Yahweh to provide for you. Things like rain, ample crops, protection of your fields, flocks and herds, just the, the basic, you know, when, a, when it's hot and 100 and some degrees and you don't have 
have uh, air conditioning, and it makes you realize how, how much you're depending on him for the change of the seasons. <clears throat> and especially when you're depending on him for your food source. You know, we, most modern Americans, go to the grocery store to buy our food. Are we really thinking about these things? Are we as grateful for them? Do we, did we have to work by the sweat of our brow to grow that food? Did anyone really, considering that most of it was planted, sprayed, harvested by someone in an air-conditioned cab of a tractor or a harvester? I would say not. We really aren't relying on Yahweh to provide that food at all. But on the big ag system, that really is part of the beast system, whether we realize it. And why do I say that? Because the intent of the modern factory farm is not to provide nourishing food for the whole world, but to expand the bottom line of the giant seed and fertilizer companies that own the patents on all the seeds, the chemicals, and the foods that they produce. They really don't care about the people that they serve or even the farmers that grow the food. Most of the farmers out there, they're not getting rich. They just keep getting deeper in debt, trying to maximize their harvest and barely scrape by, meanwhile depleting the earth. And I don't blame the farmers themselves. I don't believe that's their intent at all. They got sucked into the same system. They're backed into a corner, and they become slaves to the system. I believe, though, that we can break away from this beast system. In fact, I believe this is what we are called to do as believers. The biggest thing, though, that I feel that keeps us from doing that, that keeps us going back to Babylon for everything, is, um, is trust. We just don't trust enough in Yahweh. Um, you know, we just don't trust that he's, you know, maybe that he's not going to care for us. Because we have been raised in this beast system, and we learn to rely on it and depend on it for our employment, food, health care, housing, you name it. The beast system is built, is built upon greed and exploitation. It's not a system of justice and righteousness founded by our Father's word. Psalm 37.1 says, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they wither quickly like grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Verse 3 in the Hebrew is a beautiful verse, and we're going to pause a minute and take a look at it. In Hebrew, it says, Batach be'aweh wa'asatov shachanaretz eruah emunah. So we're going to break it down word by word here. The first word is batach. It's a primitive root, and it means... Uh, to hide for refuge, but not so precipitately as H26. It's figurative, to trust, to be confident, or sure. Notice that it makes a difference from the Hebrew word H2620, which is <clears throat> kasa, which means to flee for protection. The word batak means that we should trust boldly with confidence. The next word, I didn't highlight it, but it's... <clears throat> Yahweh, and it shouldn't need any translation here, other than I just want to remind everyone that the name literally means the eternal one who causes us to exist. So if we truly believe that that's what his name means, why not boldly put our trust in him? The next word is a common word in the Hebrew. It's found quite often, but it's asah. 
and it itself is a primitive root, and it means to do or make in the broadest sense and the widest application. So you get the point. It kind of goes on and on, but it basically means um, to do or to commit ourselves to the next word, because it's actually it's hyphenated, you can see, with the next word, which is tov. Tov is good in the widest sense, used like a noun, so to go through everything, but basically we are, commit, we are to commit ourselves to do good. But what is that good? How do we do that? The next part of the verse will tell us. Shakan is a primitive root itself as well. And through the idea of lodging, it means to reside or to permanently stay, to abide or to continue in or inhabit. So it means to inhabit by means of lodging. And as you can see here, this word itself within the Masoretic text was hyphenated or connected to the next word, Eretz. Eretz is the land or the earth. Um, as created by Yahweh. It's his creation, it's the land or the earth. And we are to dwell in that land. And in dwelling in that land, we get to our next word, ra'ah, which is to tend a flock. Some translations will we'll use, will say to feed or to tend. But essentially, this word ra'ah is the word that's used as a shepherd. <clears throat> or to feed, right? Like I said, feed. So what are we shepherding or feeding by dwelling in the land? Emuna, which means firmness, figuratively security, morally, morally fidelity, faith. Many of you have been studying Hebrew, may be familiar with the word emuna as basically meaning faithful, and how it conveys a sense of having faith in Yahweh and being fruitful or faithful to our spouse and brothers. So I kind of went through all this translation and looking at the Hebrew words so that we can get to Joshua's emphasized translation, which is, boldly trust in Yahweh with confidence by committing ourselves to doing what is good and right by permanently residing on the land and thereby feeding our faithfulness. Or something along that line. Excuse for a second. I feel that this is a challenge that is issued by, us, by the psalmist or by Yahweh himself, that we are not to worry about the evildoers in the world engaged within the beast system, but to trust in Yahweh and to live in an agrarian system that he created so that our faith in him will be built up. Let's continue looking at Psalm 37. It's a longer psalm, so we're just going to jump and look at a few verses. Verses 9, it says, For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for Yahweh, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Here it says that the wicked will be cut off from the land, but those that are humble and wait on Yahweh will inherit it. This reminds me of Yahshua's parable of the wheat and the tares. So let's take a quick look at that in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 36, it says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, 
explain to us the parable of the tares and the wheat. And he said to them, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy has sown them, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Just as the psalm says that the evildoers will be cut off, Yahshua explains that those who commit lawlessness, transgressing the Torah, will be collected and thrown into the fire, most likely referring to the lake of fire. Or, I mean, not likely it is a lake of fire, but... The psalm even says that you will look for the wicked man, and he won't be there. They will be raptured, if you will, but not as the church teaches. It's actually just the opposite. They got it backwards. It's actually the lawless ones that are going to be taken away and thrown into the fire. And a proof text of this is actually found in Proverbs as well. Proverbs 2.21 says, For the upright will live or dwell... In the land, and the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be uprooted from it. It is my personal belief that as the end times get closer and the events of Revelation play out before us, the wicked will be destroyed through the various plagues, while the righteous will need to, or should have already, made an exodus from the cities and populated population centers. We will survive, and I would say probably thrive in the wilderness on self in self self sufficient community homesteads under the wings of our father i actually believe going back to psalm 37:11 i actually think that yahshua quotes this this psalm itself on his sermon in the mount in verse 37:11 where it says but the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity Yahshua says, blessed are the gentle, or um, most translations say humble or meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In Psalm 37, we saw before the word translated land actually comes from the Hebrew word eretz, which means earth and land as well. It's one and the same. They're synonymous. And as the note in the NASB states, the Greek word that they translate Gentile means humble, or at most, as most translations put it, meek. So, you know, through the translation, I actually believe it's pretty much a, a direct um, quotation that Yahshua quoted from this psalm. Um, <clears throat> three more times in Psalms 37, it actually mentions that the righteous will inherit the land. In verse 22, it says, For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. Verse 29 says, The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Verse 34 says, Wait for Yahweh and keep his way, 
and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. That being said, this is why I feel that we should all embrace an agrarian lifestyle on the land, as this is actually our inheritance from our Father. All the biblical promises are connected to agriculture. doesn't say, keep my commands, and I'll give you a brand new car and a nice big, you know, house it says no keep my commands and i will give you rain in its season i will give you grain i will give you oil all the blessings are from the land let's actually take a look at the parable of the prodigal son a man had two sons the younger of them said to his father father give me the share of the estate that falls to me so he divided his wealth between them And not many days later, the youngest son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one as your one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf. Kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of his servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf, because he received him back safe and sound. But he became angry, and was not willing to go in. And his father came out, and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never even given me a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came... Who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and has begun to live, and was lost, and has been found. I see a parallel between this parable and what man has done since the Industrial Revolution. Most people will look at the Industrial Revolution as a great advancement for mankind. However, I see it as a detriment in many ways. While I admit that I have lived a life in almost all ways 
that has benefited from the advancement of technology. However, I don't think that the ends have justified the means, as mankind is in a worse spiritual condition than when it all started. While most of our Western cultures live pampered lives of luxury, their hearts are far from their creator, and society is in a moral death spiral. It is my opinion that the men that were leaders in ways of invention and industrialization of this nation were helped by demonic powers. How else can you explain the giant leap in technological achievement over the past 200 years? Just as mankind was given knowledge by fallen angels prior to the flood that eventually led to corruption and violence and resulted in their destruction, so too do I believe that there were keys of knowledge of the creation that were given to the men that were given to men with evil inclinations in their heart by the adversary in order to spur on the corruption of the earth and the enslavement of mankind. There is no denying that only a few elite benefited greatly while the masses were impoverished. The common man, in the end, was forced to leave the land that he was living on. All the years of of, um, pioneers that moved out into the land out here in the Midwest and the West were all forced eventually to move off to the cities. I feel that most of the people were deceived that life would be better with all these modern conveniences and that they could gain the upper hand and come out ahead. However, they did not have the foresight to see that the industrialized farming was detrimental to the land. The new tractors and plows that that were available in the early 20th century were able to plow up the land, you know, way more acreage than a team of horses. But when a dry year came and all those fields that were plowed up could not be irrigated and the, the plants withered, much of the soil dried up and was blown away in giant dust bowls. The crops withered and failed, and the farmers were not able to pay the loan, the loans that he took out for his land or his tractors and implements. Most of them lost their homesteads and had no choice but to move to the cities and serve the industrial beast system and work in factories. I believe the parallels of the parable of the young man in this case are as follows. Come on. There we go. We, or our ancestors, and our ancestors, are the younger son. Leaving the agrarian life is leaving the estate of our father. Living in cities dependent on modern technologies equivalent to loose living. Working for the elites of this world is serving a foreign master, and contributing to the beast system is feeding the pigs. What then can we do? We have to learn from the parable. We must humble ourselves and return to the estate of our father. We must pray to him and ask that he will make us his servants, as that is what we are. We are slaves of Messiah, and we are bound to the soil to serve and protect it. Joel 2.21 says, Do not fear, O soil. Be glad and rejoice, for Yahweh has done great things. There was a movement that began in the late 1900s and early 2000s referred to as Christian Christian agrarianism. It was not a big mainstream movement. It was, on the contrary, most of it was actually formed by by people's thoughts. There was no central um, ignition to this movement. 
It was just people's, I, I believe, people reading their Bible and seeing that we should be living our lives different. It was a truly grassroots movement with no official religious or political associations. I actually kind of stumbled across the philosophies of this movement recently um, when my wife bought me a book called Writings of a Deliberate Agrarian by Herrick Kimball. While reading this book, I was directed to a series of articles by a pastor named Howard Douglas King. In his article, originally published in Patriarch Magazine, called The Biblical Basis of Christian Agrarianism, King offers a definition of Christian agrarianism. It goes, Agrarianism is a philosophy that is based on the belief in the primary importance of agriculture. Agrarians attempt to understand and articulate the ideal relationship of agriculture to the various social institutions. We believe that the physical, spiritual, and social well-being of mankind depends on a common understanding of and commitment to man's most ancient and only necessary occupation. Accordingly, we seek to to articulate social theory that gives agriculture its due honor and to urge reforms that will tend to encourage homesteading and sustenance farming as a way of life. In his article... He also offers a clarification to what he is saying and likewise to what I'm saying, to the message I'm trying to proclaim here. And since he says it much more eloquently than I do, I'll quote his words. I have been accused of teaching a new and extreme doctrine, and I admit that it may appear to be novel or extreme if it is misunderstood. So please note, I am not saying that we must all immediately sell our homes and set up farming homesteads. What I am saying is that according to scripture, mankind was created to till the ground. I am saying that this truth, that this truth of man's corporate duty must begin first to register and then to resonate in our consciousness. I am saying that society as a whole must somehow, sooner or later, return to a social order directed to the end for which man was, create, which man was made. The subduing of the uncultivated earth, the recreation of, of Eden on a worldwide scale, the conversion of the wilderness into a garden that will bring forth the wholesome and, beautiful, and the beautiful for the praise and glory of the creator. <clears throat> if, all, if all we did, or if we all just went and sold our homes right away and jumped onto homesteads, it would actually be a recipe for disaster. There is no doubt that homesteading comes with its challenges, and failure is part of it. In our journey, we have suffered many setbacks. There is so much knowledge that has been lost over the years. So many things about the land that we do not know that our ancestors understood. How many of you know how to harness a team of horses and plow a field or drive a wagon? What about making and fixing the tools that are required to work the ground? How many know the ins and outs of the soil? What plants to plant when and with what companion crops? How many of you know how to preserve the food that comes from your fields and gardens without refrigerators or freezers or even factory-made glass jars and canning lids? How many know how to milk a cow or a goat by hand and then turn that into a preserved product? I know that there's plenty of you out there that know how to do some or many of these things. 
But what about if those animals need care or help giving birth? Or if they get sick, do we all know how to handle these things? I don't think that learning these things is out of the realm of possibility. But I believe that we have to commit ourselves to learning these things. I believe in a theory that I was introduced to during uh, my permaculture course. It's called appropriate technology. This is based on the idea that while many of the technologies that we have nowadays are not preferred or even sustainable, they can, and in some states, in some cases, should be used uh, for the sake of efficiency in order to create sustainable systems that will last and benefit us in the future. An example of this would be if I need to dig a hole, say for a root cellar, a pond on my homestead. And if we didn't have an excavator and saying that one didn't exist, it would, be, it would take much more time and resources to go out and procure all the parts and all the raw materials needed to, to build an excavator than it would be just to dig the hole by hand or with some horsepower. However, if we can rent an excavator or borrow one, you know, if one's available to us, it's much better to use that excavator than it would be to dig it by hand because it's going to allow us to complete that project quicker and move on to the next. That is appropriate technology, and it's appropriate use of an existing technology. An example on my homestead would be that I really want to farm with horses. However, our pastures are overgrown, and it's going to take a lot of work to get them in, back into shape before I can even get horses and have them on the land. In the meantime, I can use my tractor and brush hog to mow the fields, and install fence, you know, with the post hole digger on the back of the tractor, and maintain the homestead until I'm ready to get the horses and cows and livestock. I also don't believe, and I'm not saying that every person is, a, is to be a farmer per se, but that our occupations should be in line with supporting the local agrarian community. <clears throat> I think historically, most people, regardless of their occupation, still had agricultural connections. They would still have had their own field or gardens or some livestock um, to at least supply some of their basic food needs. As mo and most occupations supported the agrarian needs, like the blacksmith made and repaired tools for the farmer. And how better to know how to make an efficient tool when you use it yourself? The weaver and the seamstress, seamstress made fabrics and you know, from and clothes from the linen and wool that the farmers produced to, to clothe themselves and the farmers. Um, you had the potters that made vessels, you know, to, to hold all the, the goods that are needed. A scriptural example of someone having fields and gardens, regardless of their occupation, can be found in 2 Samuel 14, verses 29 through 30. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. So he sent again a second time, but he would not come. Therefore he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. While not a happy example, we can see that Joab, even though he was a commander of David's army, had, his, had fields. His wealth wasn't stored up in the community bank of Jerusalem, his wealth was in the land and the fields and the produce thereof. Even Yahshua himself, while the scriptures don't give us like an explicit 
you know, occupational resume of, of his, we know that he was a, a builder or a carpenter. Mark 6.3 says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Miriam, the brother of James and Josie and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The, the Greek word used for carpenter is tekton, which certainly means a worker of wood, but can mean a build, builder in general. So our master's occupation was that of one that most likely, I'm sure it did, support the local agrarian economy <clears throat> by possibly building homes and barns. He may have spent time making tools, wagons, plows, yokes, and other farm implements. Regardless of Yahshua's type of carpentry, we know that he had an in-depth knowledge and understanding of farming and agrarian life, being that in most of his parables... Um, are agrarian in nature. Again, I'm not condemning or telling anyone that they are sinning because they are not on this path. I'm just trying to sow some seeds and suggest a different you know, worldview from what most of us are used to, to come more in line with what I see as a scriptural worldview. I believe that the church itself is much to blame for the move from an agrarian-centered life to that of industrialism. First off, their teaching that the law no longer applies to us leads to an attitude that things don't matter, and it doesn't matter how we live our lives. <clears throat> it leads to a materialistic, self-indulged, throwaway culture that doesn't care about the earth, how they live or what they eat, because what does it matter when JESUS is coming to get me and take me to my mansion in heaven in the end? Outside of the Amish and Mennonite and a few other fringe sects, most of Christianity embraces modern technology as a blessing sent from G.O.D. Just like they teach that it's okay to worship on a Sunday and profane the Shabbat, it's okay to eat what our Father says not to and to celebrate pagan holidays while ignoring our Father's feast days, they will confuse the beast system with something good, mainly because it benefits them and serves their fresh, fleshly needs. The Amish and Mennonite had broken away from the church because they saw the direction that it was going. However, for whatever reason, they held to their own tradition of their elders and haven't come back to complete truth. However, I feel a look at their culture, um, you know, when we look at their culture, there's a lot that we can learn from their way of life as they still hold the knowledge of simple living and the old ways of life, life living off the land, closer to the soil. But I say it's about time for us as Yahweh's people to begin to move back to the land from where we came, out of the beast system. Come out of her, my people. Call it you know, Hebrew agrarianism, biblical agrarianism, messianic agrarianism. Call it whatever you want, or don't call it anything at all. But it's the way. Haderech. Remember that heaven and earth stand as a witness against us. So we should consider well our path <clears throat> and how we treat the soil and the earth around us. There are pioneers out there in front of us already leading the way. We need to learn from them. Let's build interwoven communities that can learn and benefit from each other. Let's be a people that are different and peculiar, that when others look at us, they will say, they must have a great Elohim because they are blessed, because that's what Yahweh desires of his people. There are a lot of young folks out there in this world today that are fed up with the system and they want out, but they don't have Yahweh in their lives to guide them. We should be a light to them and others like them. 
Down in southeastern Missouri, near Poplar's Bluff, uh, one of the Waller brothers from the High of L family has a ministry called Love and Purity. And next spring, they're starting a program for 18 to 30-year-olds called Harp and Farm, where they teach young Messianic believers the skills to live in a homestead and farm in a Yah-centered way. It's, it's very encouraging to me know that I'm not the only one out there that thinks this way. Saying all that, I will leave you with this. Luke 9:57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Yahshua said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Master, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of Elohim. Another also said, I will follow you, Master, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Yahshua said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of Elohim. So, brethren, please put your hand to the plow and do not look back. May Yahweh bless.